Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 21, Listen to Haiti. Josh, how's the heat wave treating I'm you? I'm just a pool of sweat right now. I'm glad this is not a video podcast, because I wouldn't want people to see me as, as I am right now. It's bad. I know it, and, and you know it's not easy to stay cool. Not, not in, a, in a heat wave, and not in the uh, current political climate of the United States either. But uh, we agreed, we have a gentleman's agreement, not to go down the wormhole this episode of all the things that are annoying us politically right now. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I totally agree. I'm just going to do 35 minutes on the DNC. <laughs> I, have some, I have a prepared statement I'm going to read. But uh, I guess I can, I can tear it up. We can do that another time. You know what you do? Do you find the nearest street corner, stand up on a chair, and read it to whoever happens to come by? Yeah, I mean, we got street corners. There's no people around anywhere. So I guess that's the perfect, yeah, the perfect audience for my, for my views. It's hard to rabble rouse in a pandemic, you know, if nobody's around. I mean, yeah, especially in the suburbs. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm, I have to say, I'm very excited about our episode today. We have a, a special guest, Andre Yust, uh, who is going to uh, engage us uh, for the better part of this episode in something that I think you and I both agree we definitely uh, need to pay a lot more attention to, and that is our near neighbor here in the Western Hemisphere, uh, the island nation we know as Haiti. Yeah, Haiti is, is you know, I've been obviously in prep- preparation for the interview and just kind of thinking about it the last, because I had this idea to talk with Andre. It, it was a while ago now, maybe a month ago, and we just couldn't get it together now. So I've been thinking about, you know, what we were going to talk about and, and uh, what we we're going to focus on. And it's just, the more you think about Haiti, the more you realize how significant its history has been for for the world that we now live in and you know to, to pair that with the idea that as important as it's been it's so under discussed i think in in the general you know conversations about history about the western hemisphere about revolution about liberty about freedom um it should be our, our prime example in many ways uh i was making this point to you before we, record, we started but you know i think the history of haiti tells us more about freedom and liberty than the, the history of the american revolution or something like that mm-hmm. uh the history of haiti reveals more about the modern world than the, the French Revolution in some ways. Because, you know, you can talk about the ideals of the French Enlightenment. You can talk about, you know, Rousseau and John Locke and all these guys. You can talk about Jefferson and uh, various framers of kind of the American Republic and this kind of thing. But Haiti is the example where you have literally people who are held as property fighting for their freedom and liberty and when they win that liberty, being ostracized by the by the world community. I mean, what what better introduction to the way the world's going to going to function in the next two hundred years than that story, right? Exactly. And I think you know it's worth reminding our listeners that there were two revolutions in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, that uh, which, of course, creates the United States, the one that most of us are you know familiar with almost by rote learning. 
the events of that revolution. Uh, but the other being, of course, Haiti. Uh, now, the, the, the American Revolution, as we call it, was a revolution led by slaveholders in the name of liberty. The Haitian Revolution was led by those who were actually enslaved in the name yeah. of liberty. And so why we haven't paid more attention to the Haitian Revolution, I, I think, you know, you and I were talking before the episode, it, you know, many of these American slave owners, starting with Thomas Jefferson, who was president, you know, at the, at, the, at the time that Haiti gets its formal independence from France in 1804, they were profoundly ambivalent about a revolution that would actually create freedom. Right. You were, you, you were reading something before we started. It was something really uh, f funny about Jefferson being uncomfortable with the idea of, of, <laughs> of a slave rebellion. Oh, really? Oh, Jefferson was uncomfortable with the idea? I wonder why Jefferson might have been so uncomfortable with the idea of a, a slave, uh, slave rebellion creating an independent black republic. Yeah, and the, and 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 the, and the harsh truth was that you know the U.S. Uh, flexing its imperial muscle, even even at that early stage when the U.S. didn't have a lot of muscle, you know, we were still basically a seventy-pound weakling. That nevertheless, uh, Jefferson created what amounted to a kind of embargo against Haiti that lasted, uh, as I think you pointed out, to what eighteen sixty-two. Yeah, yeah. Or a, a diplomatic non-recognition, if not an outright embargo. I mean, it was right. it was turning the proverbial cold shoulder to our sister republic. Yeah, I mean, and it also you just changes the story because you know people want to talk about the, the the secret of American success and you know the the can-do spirit of the Americans or the you know independence, individuality, whatever you want to say about you know why the United States has been successful. But we could maybe start with the fact that after its formation. It wasn't forced to pay a massive reparation to the British that crippled its economy for the next, you know, mm -hmm. uh, hundred plus years. It, uh, that it wasn't unrecognized by much of the global community and ostracized by the global community, so it could function within this this broader world community and, and trade and, and and benefit from that. Um, that it wasn't subject to invasion and occupation repeatedly over the next hundred years after its um, it, its independence. Those things might matter a little bit, right? Yeah, it's sort of the equivalent of historical redlining. You know, Haiti got redlined and <laughs> uh, denied any real opportunity to develop that kind of intergenerational wealth, you know, through uh, trade and support of its, you know, its own local economies that might have, uh, you know, created or, 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 as you point out, freedom from, from, you know, reparation debt to the French you know, right. uh, French slave owners, basically, who had to somehow get paid, you know, and thus creating a familiar pattern of dependency and indebtedness in, um, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, the kind of thing that we see in our own internal colonized population of black America, you know, and uh, and that's not a coincidence, is it? The fact that the, the Haitian slaves who rose up, that is, those enslaved sugarcane workers and others who rose up to defeat the French, uh, had that same, uh, in effect, uh, racial identity, you know, in the minds of the Thomas Jeffersons as those who in the United States labored at places like Monticello. Uh, you know, there's actually a slave rebellion that is uh, arrested before it comes to fruition in Jefferson's home state of Virginia. It's called the Prosser Rebellion in the early 1800s, right about the time the Haitians were uh, achieving their independence. And Gabriel Prosser, knew all about 
Toussaint Louverture and, and the other Haitian revolutionaries and had conspired uh, to create a similar revolution in Virginia before it was, uh, you know, found out and, and put down by the local authorities. So, uh, you know, Jefferson wasn't just being paranoid. Jefferson had a racial investment in unfreedom that he felt that, uh, you know, that Haiti threatened. And I think that set the basic course for why we haven't listened to Haiti more carefully, but we're hoping to to correct for that, you know, today with with this episode. Yeah, just w- w- one last thing, and we we can we can move on. But I, there's this this quote that's been in my head for about a month and a half now, I think, maybe longer, from a, a guy we've we've mentioned a few times now, uh, James C. Scott, a uh, guy um, my brother mm-hmm. mentioned actually last week as well. He's talking about you know early domestication and agriculture, and he, and he gets to the the issue of sheep. And he says, you know, sheep has become this pejorative that we use. Like, you know, you're a sheep if you just follow orders and this kind of stuff. You go along with the crowd. He's like, but what we don't understand is that we created sheep, right? We literally bred them for the purpose of being docile and following the herd and this kind of stuff. So how can we criticize them for doing exactly what they were intended to do? And, I, and it's so much about the modern world, about the contemporary world. It, it says so much about the contemporary world because, you know, the power structure created the world in this way, created the world in which certain countries will be at the bottom of the power structure. Certain countries will have all the advantages to get to stay at the top of the power structure. And then we criticize those countries for being at the bottom of the power structure. We criticize them for their poverty. We criticize them for their, quote unquote, instability in this sort of thing. But they're doing exactly what they were intended to do by the power structure in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was designed that way. It was designed uh, that way. A point we keep coming back to, right? And unfortunately, as we're going to hear in the interview, and we'll talk a bit about it afterwards, is that the role that history plays in that, I mean, the role of the telling of of the story, you know, history is written, uh, history is told, is that it, um, you know, on the one hand, it sanctifies that, that system of power, and in telling the story over and over makes us, in effect, accomplices in it. In other words, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the, the Haitian uh, scholar, um, Michel uh who, who Andre will also mention in, in, you know, in the episode, uh, a historian uh, who uh, taught for many years at Johns Hopkins and who wrote a book called Silencing the Past, Power and Production of History. Uh, and as Truyot was arguing in this book, it's a fascinating read, uh, is that essentially those stories of history, you know, those, those uh, told stories of the nation's past, let's say in the case of the U.S., you know, were created as a, as a kind of instrument of power that made us over time not only an, an accomplice to supporting that system, you know, to, to defending those claims of sovereignty, but also made us complacent. In thinking that therefore we understood the past, that we, you know, when we, we we knew the basic catechism of power, you know, recited, that therefore we understood the past. And what Truro and I think what Andre is going to make emphatically the point, in other words, is that that complacency, in effect, kept us from hearing the many histories that weren't made complicit in that big story. In other words, the the silent spaces, you know, uh, where histories played out. And, on, you know, on, on our podcast, we've argued for pulling the borders off history. But part of what we're saying is what Tro would have us know. And that is, we have to listen to these divergent experiences, 
you know, to the contra to, to the experiences that contradict that more familiar, more complacent narrative. So I'm I'm really excited to have Andre on today, and and I think our our listeners are going to enjoy the conversation you guys have. Yeah, I hope so. It was it was a fun uh, conversation to have. You know, I was saying before we we started that our plan was like do thirty to forty five minutes as usual, and then I I stopped you know, the recording eventually. And it was like an hour and 16 minutes, mm-hmm. which I was able to cut down to like an hour and 12 minutes, something like that. So <laughs> none of this was intentional, but that just kind of gets across. Once that conversation got going, it was, it was, it, you know, it was hard to get to a point where I wanted it to end because there kept being more to say about, about these things. And, uh, and so hopefully you guys will enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed uh, actually doing the interview. Let's listen to Haiti. We are very excited now to have our guest here. He is an artist, an art writer, former educator as well. And uh, can I say Brooklyn by way of Port-au-Prince? Is that a fair way that's to... That's right. Yeah, that's correct. That's right. We have uh, Andre Juiced here with us. How's it going, Andre? I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so we wanted, I wanted to have you on to kind of talk about your own background you know, you sent me some stuff of yours to, to read, and it was just fascinating writing about art and what I kind of got from from that piece. And we'll, we'll when it's available, we will share that piece on our website as well if, if you if you'd like. Mm-hmm. But um, that ultimately, you know, whether you're writing about art or history, there's these these links, right? There's this common thread. Everything's historical or everything's art. I don't know which way it goes, mm-hmm. but uh, but it was a really fascinating piece. I will probably refer to it as we go on as well. But I wanted to start actually by but you just kind of introducing yourself, your biography. Um, to our listeners, right. Well, essentially, I'm Andre Just, and uh, or just uh, you know, if um, name gets a little anglicized here, you know, the more you you, uh, you live in the states. And uh, came to New York when I was 13. I was brought here. It, it's like you know, I, I had things had not been planned for me in advance that I was I would come. I knew something was uh, you know I, I was supposed to go somewhere, but it came really suddenly. It was just a matter of like, oh, like tomorrow. And go, you know, uh, you know, we're gonna go on a plane, and we're gonna go to New York, you know, that that kind of thing, you know. So even though I had a little suit made, you know, my grandmother had a little <laughs> suit made for me for the occasion and that kind of stuff, but it, it still didn't register until like the last, the like the day, the, the day that I got on the taxi, you know, <laughs> yeah. mini bus actually to go to take the whole family to at the airport and so forth. So, <clears throat> so um, yeah, I came here in '69 actually, you know, uh, which is like you know a great time. It would have nice to have come here a little early. I always said to myself, you know, like in the middle of the 60s kind of thing, you know, right. sort of, you know, and, and being a little older. And it's, so, um, 69, I got here, you know, and, you know, uh, back then there was no, uh, you know, ESL. So I was put in the third grade, you know, at 13, you know, and I spent a couple of months there and I went to sixth grade and the eighth grade and finally kind of caught up and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, high school was kind of like a, you know, blur. I didn't you know, really do, all, you know, serious work there. I kind of like, uh, I was like, uh, um, if I did, if I got a 90, it was great. If I got a 40, it didn't matter either. Like I was kind of <laughs> like, you know, nonchalant, you know, but you know, but I was, I was, I was not a dumb kid, you know, I just didn't push myself, you know? Right. Right. Like a lot of us. Yeah. 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 And then it was just on to college, which is like, I just happened to, you know, I just got a postcard one day saying, uh, report to Brooklyn college. I'm like, what do they want from me? I, I don't, I don't <laughs> thought you're in trouble. applying to college. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So anyway, um, I got to college and um, in 75 
And that's when, uh, you know, a lot of things began to uh, be awakened in me, including the fact that I, I, I couldn't read English all that well, because I didn't read, a, I, I hardly read anything in high school. So, um, so I, take a, I had to take, this was the heyday of open admission, by the way. So you were okay. guaranteed a place in a four-year college, you know, uh, you know, even if you're, your average, uh, uh, you know, your, your grades were kind of weak. Anyway, so I got to Brooklyn College, you know, uh, and aside from the discovering the fact that I, I, I couldn't read English and French was kind of like, I, I was forgotten, like a lot of it. And my Creole was a mess. So my older brother said, used to joke and say, well, what do you speak, man? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I find myself in that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that quandary. And so, uh, and aside, I, I also discovered that I didn't know much of, uh, of history either. Because, uh, you know, you come to New York, also it's TV and you're drinking soda. And it's like, you know, immigrant family. And, uh, you know, there's like somebody's birthday here this weekend, another birthday next weekend, somebody's getting married. And you just kind of get, get caught in the flow of things, you know, you don't, you know, so there's no really uh, planning. That, at least that was the case for my family. That's not the case for everyone. Right. Is that, is that like, a, were you, were you kind of integrated into this larger Haitian community in, in New York? Yes, right, yeah. exactly. So basically I landed in Brooklyn. It was like another Haiti, basically, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> Right, I was this this little microcosm of Haiti, and and you were glad to see another Haitian on the street, like you know, like even if you didn't know the person, but like you, they'll come to your house, you know. Uh, God forbid if you're having a party at your house, anybody will show up was Haitian because like the doors open. It's like you know, right, it's right. Like the whole community is remaking itself. And anyway, people are, are people are, are is it people are speaking Creole? Are they speaking English? They're speaking oh, people French. are speaking Creole, like most mostly Creole, right? Some French, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, which is reserved for like polite society, or if you're uh, educated enough. But in my family, we we spoke mostly Creole, even though I grew up with French as as a you know, you know my my grandfather's side, you know. Yeah. Like, you know. Anyway, so um, yeah, so got to Brooklyn College. And discovering that I couldn't read, you know, well, yeah, at least English, because it was like basically less than 10 years, so 69 to 70, 75. Right. Right. And so, uh, and then, you know, I started taking these classes, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, African Liberation Movement, and I, I got hit between the eyes so bad, you know, it was like a huge awakening for someone who had been basically, you know, sleeping I hit the books really hard, you know, that's yeah. why, that's why I did all my learning, you know, basically. And so there was this huge awakening about, you know, uh, uh, about what the history of the world, basically. I didn't know about colonialism. I didn't know about Africa, the situation, the, the, the colonial, the post-colonial movement there, the African independence movement. And I had teachers who were teaching me all that stuff. The, so that, that was really, really, really hard. And to the point where it sort of like, you know, made me, uh, it alienated me from the present, uh, you know, from, the, from, from, from New York culture, so to say, in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made me very serious. It made me very, uh, you know, determined to, to, to learn more. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm taking all these classes, you know, I, I, well, I had a double life, actually, in college. I was quite involved in, you know, you know Haitian uh, student movements. And you know, Haitian clubs, and there are a lot of anti-Divadian movements back then, okay. while you're still in power, the, the dictators in Haiti. So I was in the flow of, of, of that as well, in the thick of that. And, you know, marches, demonstrations, going marching against apartheid, and Washington, D.C., at least two or three times, you know, yeah. And so, you know, demonstrations on campus, you know, yeah, occupying building and that kind of stuff. So, you so know, this is a I quick was, transformation. It sounds like you went from kind of disconnected from this all this right. stuff to just fully immersed in it all, right? Yeah, Within like yeah, a couple yeah. of years, basically. 
yeah, right, exactly. Within, within, the, within the first year, actually, yeah, within the first year, right, I was really, uh, and there were older, you know, Haitian students there, uh, uh, you know, uh, who are steeped in Haitian history, and I would, you know, just hanging out, you know, with them. Sometimes you learn, learn more from your peers than you learn from, from the classroom. Yeah. You know? so I was putting all this together. I'm getting it from the classroom. I'm also getting it from, from, from my older friends. You know, one of them actually who used to be at, at the Brooklyn College campus his name is Wolf Tuyo, became a famous historian, very well respected, actually, at John Hopkins. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, his famous book is uh, Silencing the Past. You might, you might have heard that title. I'm, I'm going to yeah. write it down, yeah. Yeah, Silencing the Past. Michel Wolf Tuyo is a, yeah, a great scholar, actually. He passed away. His whole family is a bunch of intellectuals and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that what, that's what, what it was like for me, you know, uh, you know getting into college. So, uh, so my historical consciousness basically um, started to develop, you know, in like 1975, 1976, right? right? Yeah. And so that's when I learned about Haitian history. Yeah. It's a really good reminder. There's, a, there's you know, a lot of talk today, you know, education about, about culturally relevant teaching, right? That how do we make this stuff relevant to the students who are in our class? And, you know, you, know, you talked about just kind of drifting your way through, through high school. Mm-hmm. And it was only in college that you were, had this awakening. And it sounds like almost you had the awakening because you suddenly were confronted with stuff that was actually relevant to who you were and how you thought of yourself and, you know, that, that you had never come across this kind of stuff in school before. And if you well, had maybe in high school, then your experience would have been very different, probably. Well, precisely. Uh, and, and that was on, on both counts, by the way, this, this idea of relevance to students. And I always contend that, you know, students who like who, you know, I don't I don't believe that anybody you know that people cannot read or, or don't like to read i just i just feel that people haven't come across the right book for them yet you know yeah. i, I uh, you know or the right material because sometimes you come across something you just devour it you know it doesn't really matter how hard it if it's your subject your topic at the right time at the right place you read it you know yeah so so i really believe that so this idea of relevance is quite important and two counts first having been like uh, uh you know having trouble you know um writing and and uh, uh and reading in college right four years mm-hmm. later i was an english major yeah. i became an english teacher <laughs> <That's actually. amazing. laughs> which is odd that was like that was my weakest subject yeah. and that's what i basically majored in you know i mean i could have majored in you know like french i could have majored in like math you know I mean, right that kind of stuff but so i became so relevance you know meaning that i was reading literature that that you know that that kind of like touched me that sort of like you know um touched something in me and mm-hmm. I responded. I kept taking these classes. So after two years, I said to myself, well, listen, I have to choose a major. I look at my transcript. I'm like, well, I've got all these um, credits in English. Well, that's my major. Right. <laughs> that's yep. how it happened. By, so I was an English major by default, basically. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, and, and the, the strangest thing about it is that I, I, I was not into literature per se. Yeah. Here you have an English major who was, was not necessarily reading English. Basically, I'm just, I, you, you go to class and your teacher's prescription give you a list of books to read and you, you read them. And uh, I, I learned how to become, a, uh, how to be a student. That's what it is basically. Right. Yeah. So, no, that's, uh, that's right. Yeah. That's a big, you know, I teach at a community college and that's a big mm-hmm. thing because it's actually, you know, similar to your experience. It's open enrollment, right? Anybody can go, mm-hmm. um, which means you're going to get students who are, you know, they were amazing students in high school. You have students who, you know, didn't graduate high school and had, you know, just got their GED mm-hmm. and are going back. You got this whole range of, of things. But one of the things you notice is that a lot of them, beyond not, you know, having the, the background in, in reading and writing and all this kind of stuff, they, they just don't know how to be a student, like the, the right, basic right, yeah, the skills right. to, you know, what you do in the classroom, these, these things right. that 
you know, I think a lot of people would take for granted. Um, there you can't take for granted because it's, it's just something that has not been, um, you know, they just haven't encountered before. Right. So right, that's right. Yeah. That's part uh, of your own journey as well. Right. Yeah. Yes. Completely. It, like it seems to be what I've learned is that there are two ways to, to, to be a student basically. And you, you could be a, you know, a great student. You just go there, you sit and you're this passive person and, and people, professors throw stuff at you and you absorb it and you regurgitate and you get like, a, you know, like a lot of students function on that level. Yeah. You know, like, you know, basically just like, you know, you're a great spot. You, you, you soak things up and you, and you know how to, you know how to respond to your teachers. You know what they're looking for, and you know how to play the game, basically. You know, yeah, you, absolutely. You know, right. And so that's one way. The other way is to, is to go to school and basically to seek out what 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 it is that you actually want. Yeah. So the and, and you're looking for doors that can open, you know, that that are open to you, so you can get into them and so forth. And so you're not this passive person just absorbing information, but you're actually seeking out a, a particular path or, or various paths for yourself. So, which I did, I, I learned that uh, unfortunately until when you know. After eight years of school, it was like a little, I mean, no, that was kind of late. But. But yeah, I mean, I guess you could say unfortunate, but I mean, I, th- I think there's a degree, again, you know, teaching community college that people find this stuff at different times in their lives, right? That you, you know, right. it's not necessarily when you encounter it, it's just that at some point you want to be able to have that sense of passion, have that sense of connection to the material because it, yeah. you know, like, like you were saying, it just opens up this whole new world for you. You, mm-hmm. you know, you go through a transformation as you, as you did once you're confronted with this stuff that, that makes sense to you and, and in many ways makes sense of you to yourself, right? That you start making sense. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You have to be, you know, you have to feel something in your core. Like it, learning is like this, this, this emotional thing too, you know, it's like, you know, and, and, and just to some degree, even ap- apprehending any reality, you know, has to be emotional on some level. It's not just, a, you know, a, a, a intellectual, you know, a, a rational a, a process. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's really in your gut that you have to feel it as well and, and all in that they all interconnect actually, you know, but yeah, as, far as far as Haitian history goes, you know, um, I, I, so I, I began to learn about, you know, uh, imperialism, neocolonialism, and especially, you know, a, a couple of my teachers, they were activists and they were all into, um, the African liberation movement. That's why I got to go to Washington, you know, so, you know, a few times and, uh, you know, and Kumaism, you know, Pan-Africanism, Lumumba, mm-hmm. You know, I remember reading, a, you know, I took a speech class and one of the things that I read was a Lumumba speech, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was really steeped in, into that and in that world. And at the same time, my other life was, you know, like the arts. I was taking all these literature classes and art classes. Yeah. So, so I, had, I had like, you know, both worlds going at the same time. One was very uh, relevant to my life, the political stuff. And the art, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, ironically... And in the literature, I, I was kind of like doing that just, just you know, uh, uh, as, as a curiosity, basically. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted from, from the art. You know, I kind of like just, I just took art class. I just take, took literature classes. But I did, I, I, I was not a literary person. I was not like reading literature on my own. Where, mm-hmm. Whereas with the, with, with the political stuff, I was, doing, I was politically engaged. I was, I was part of, you know, the Haitian Student Association. I was like part of like political groups. So there was more relevance with, with the, uh, with the uh, his, historical stuff than with the, uh, with the artsy literary stuff. <laughs> right. And it probably took a while to figure out, oh, these two things can go together, right? But they well, didn't well, have exactly. to be separate That's spheres. That's right. That's right. And, and the, 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 the only reason I would say I, I didn't go further academically with art history, which I think I was good at and stuff, it's I didn't see any relevance. 
Yeah. You know, I, I got counseling from one professor. You know, I became an English teacher almost by default. I, that's not really, that was a last minute thing. You know, mm-hmm. I heard a friend talking about teaching. I'm like, well, maybe I'll do that. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how a lot of people become teachers, actually, I will say. Yeah, right. So maybe I'll do that. You know, after eight years of school, like, I have to do something, you know. Yeah. And, but I, 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 I could have, you know, uh, studied art history, you know, and I thought about comparative literature, but I didn't see, I didn't see the relevance there. Yeah. I, I, the, as, as far as the arts go, it didn't connect. I didn't make the connection between art history. When I saw art history, it was like Western art history. I kept saying, I kept saying yeah. there's little Michelangelo uh, angels in the air kind of thing. Like right, I, right. I spent like eight years studying my little, you know, you know, angels little, in the little air. Little fat angels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, there was no relevance there. And therefore that door was shut out to me. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's such an important point. And again, that's about, about cultural relevance and, and representation. It's like, you're not seeing yourself in these things. And so those things are not interesting to you, right? They don't have the right. same, you right. don't have, have that same passion for them and, and connection to them. Mm-hmm. So let, let's just um, take a, a little detour here. And can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, Haitian kind of the, the story of Haitian liberation and then the, the aftermath of that. We don't need to do a hundred and, 16 yeah, yeah, years yeah. of Haitian history, but just because yeah. the story itself is so fascinating and, and really does then set the stage for the rest of Haitian history. I was, that legacy is still there from the revolution and then what comes right, out. Right, right. Well, you know, as you know, you know, people study revolutions there, you know, uh, there, there are three of them, basically, the, the French Revolution, the, uh, uh, the American Revolution, and then like the Haitian Revolution. These are like, yeah. you know, like basically what, 19th century? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Late 18th, so, early 19th, yeah. 18, the end of 18, 19, yeah. So, um, so these are the, the three revolutions. The Russian Revolution came much later. Uh, so, when uh, people often say often say that the Haitian Revolution is a byproduct of the French Revolution, you know, there's some overlap there. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to you know delve too much in this historical topic. It's not really my field. But from what I understand, is that the uh, you know slave also overheard of you know uh, their masters talking about what was happening in France. And so uh, basically that stuff, you know, uh, part of, uh, that, that's, the, that's part of the impetus for the right. revolt. But, but then again, that, that's not, that's, that's only part of it because people have been revolting, you know, even on the slaves, people would put themselves overboard and so right. forth. So it's not simply that the, the, the center was France and then every, everyone's inner consciousness revolved around the bits and pieces that there were. Uh, of of, uh, of political uh, action that they were you know uh, you know listening to you know uh, when their masters were eating or something yeah. so that it was more a, 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 a combination of of, uh, of things that that basically brought about the revolt including like you know it was like slave would die so fast in that field don't forget France was like the, the richest Haiti Hispaniola back then was the richest colony of of, of France you know with, I like, think it was the know, richest colony in the world I believe in the world in the yeah exactly Right. Yeah. So it was like, you know, uh, yeah. So people would just die like flies on the field. It was cheaper to import slaves and so forth. Mm-hmm. So 1791, fast forward, you know, uh, uh, former Haitian uh, uh, African captives, you know, uh, even the words, you know, there are Haitian restor- uh, historians who don't necessarily want to refer to, you know, to all Africans as, you know, slave, because that that's not, that's not the total defining characteristic of, of, yeah. of these people, you know, so you know, so the other way to, to, to name them is to say, well, these are, these are African captives, basically, or, right. or you know, not, yeah. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, so, I, the language that, that the, the wording that, that I've kind of come across, you know, because when you say somebody is a slave, that becomes identity. Right, right? exactly. But, but 
I've seen more and more people use use enslaved. You know, if you have to talk about people who are uh, captured, enslaved is a is a circumstance rather than identity. So right. it's, it, it takes it changes that meaning a little bit just by saying enslaved as opposed to that. Right. That's right. Slaves, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. right. You said enslaved people are supposed to slave. Right. That's correct. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. That, that that's a great that's a great point. And, and then you kind of have like both words like you know embedded into both meanings are there together. Right. Yeah. And there's also there's there's a fairly large freed population in, in Haiti. It's very different from the United States in that regard in that you have, you know, this large, almost middle class of often, um, you know, mixed race, but but free people of, of African descent. Right. Right. Well, 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 that's true. Yeah. Well, exactly. So that, that was like a, that was a, a huge issue there. In fact, the more like middle intermediary class, they call them the mulatto class, basically, just like children of planters, you know, and someone would, would get to go to Paris to get educated and mm-hmm. so forth. But they were basically, you know, second or third class citizens like in, in, in the country. So right. they were part of that, you know, hierarchy. And I think initially they were the first to act, to ask for, to demand their, uh, their rights. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a couple of them, Auger and Chavan, who had gone to uh, uh, France to petition, you know, uh, during the revolution to uh, uh, the, the French Revolution 1789, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, rebels are in power, so to say. So, the, the, uh, so these, um, they call them affranchis, you know, the freedmen, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, would go, they, they had gone to France to uh, petition the, uh, the powers there, you know, for their rights. And when they came back to, the, uh, to Haiti, they were basically, uh, they were broken at the wheel. So yeah, so the, the the local French planters said, "Well, that's not going to happen," you know. So right. there was there was this contradiction between the local French planters who wanted the old order, of course, you know, and the um, and of course the uh, the revolutionaries in Paris, right? Right. So there, there was a, there was a, a you know of course a contradiction there. The old system was uh, was falling apart, and uh, and the planters wanted to keep the the old system. So 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 this too was that uh, you know was this. The slaves uh, uh, rebelled in 1791. That's when it started. And there was a 13-year uh, war, okay, that burned all the plantations, basically. And uh, by the time Bonaparte came to power and wanted to, um, you know, reinstitute slavery, he sent his uh, son and his, his relative there, Leclerc. I think that was his son-in-law. I think it was his son-in-law, yeah. I think that's son-in-law, right. that's right. Son-in-law, right. Uh, uh, back to Haiti with a, a huge expedition, you know, and um, that expedition was defeated. You know, the famous battle of Verchier. It's a famous battle where the French actually are defeated. And so, 1804, Haiti proclaimed its, uh, its independence. And there was, of course, reaction. It's, you know, there's always, there's revolution, there's always reaction, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, the Dessalines, who, uh, Haiti has to, like, there are some famous leaders, but, Toussaint is the one that everyone knows and yeah. that the West tends to be enamored of, mm-hmm. you know, but Desalines is the, is the bête noire, so to say, is the one that, you know, like, you know, the West is not like to, to deal with. Even the, uh, sometimes the Haitian intelligentsia, the, you know, like for, for a time that didn't really, in fact, in Haiti, Desalines' name was not even mentioned for like, from, from what I've heard more recently for like for decades. In the, in the modern yeah. age? Yeah, 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 right. After the independence, uh, 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 after 1804, Okay. Like, you know, when, once Pétion, Pétion was the, uh, so like, Afranchi or Mulatto president, right? It's, it's basically, well, Pétion came in the, uh, sh- with the expedition of Leclerc from Paris. Okay. Right? So basically, yeah. he was, you know, if not in, uh, at heart, but technically in the camp of the French. Yeah. 
But once he landed, you know, in, in Haiti and uh, circumstances led him to to have this accord, you know, between him and and uh, and the other generals, and that's how Haiti got its independence. There was this accord mm-hmm. between the, the 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 rival classes, you know, between the the mulattoes and the the blacks. You know, these are of course constructs. Right. Uh, use these. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, independence, 1804, and and then counter revolution would set in because hey, this time would be assassinated by by, by 1806. Mm-hmm. Right. And people consider Dessalines to be the, the, the real father of the, of the nation, who's the more right. radical kind of guy. And uh, by the way, there's a, a section in, in, in Brooklyn now, a street that's named after, it's called Jean-Jacques Dessalines Boulevard. You know, we're, we're big in that, you know, <laughs> and definitely in the last, you know, uh, you know, uh, a few years, the past couple of decades, at least, you know, Dessalines more. He's been, you can't, every, every politician, every, every person talks about Dessalines. In fact, uh, October, uh, August 14th was the, uh, uh, the cele- people have just celebrated, you know, uh, uh, what's called the ceremony Boacaima. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the Congress or the gathering the, the enslaved people attended. And that's where they plan to basically to start the revolution. So uh, it was August 14th, actually, a couple of days ago. Yeah. So this sound is quite extremely popular now, you know, they're extremely popular, more, more so than, than, than Toussaint, I would, I would say, yeah. Okay, so interesting. The political parties named after Desalines, you know, is, is the real radical symbol. Because, well, the thing that Desalines is, is known for, for he basically, he had, uh, uh, since uh, Toussaint was captured, you know, as a result of treachery, right? And uh, by the way, you know, j- just to complicate things a little bit, and I, I decided just learned like two, two, uh, two days ago, the station <laughs> which the historian was on. Uh, talking about Bracaima, that famous Congress, that ceremony, right, where the, where, where the revolution uh, started. And he basically uh, uh, said that uh, uh, Desalines was actually in part responsible for uh, 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 the capture of Toussaint. Mm-hmm. Because what happens, like, these generals were basically, you know, at, at one point, Desalines was on the French side. Right. You know, like, I think Toussaint joined the Spanish side. One, so there was, things were, like, really in flux. Yeah. You know, you know, so it took it took a while for the Haitian side to basically con, uh, configure itself into, a, you know, as a political entity, you right. know, and that happened because Napoleon basically wanted to restore slavery. You know, I think that's what that was that brought people that, back that together, like united the Haitian population, yeah. basically, right? And if even the 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 Afranchis, the the middle class, the, the mulatto uh, class, so to say, um, they're not a class, you know, but that that particular entity there. You know, if, if slavery is restored, they're going to lose out. They're going to be second fiddle. And, right. and, and some of them were filthy rich, by the way. Some of they them had are, plantations you know, themselves. Yeah, yeah, case, yeah, right? yeah, right. They had plantation of slaves. And also, don't forget, sometimes some of the, uh, the you could be a, a freed man, you could be black or, or of mixed race. And both entities had slaves. Yeah. You know, before slavery was, was outlawed. So it was like a, a, you know, a very established system that people perceive as being like normal right like it's so so interesting because you know putting us in the late 18th century early 19th century Mm -hmm. what it's kind of showing is that these kind of racial categories are not fully fixed yet right that that there's 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 more wiggle room than there would be and especially when compared to the united states which you know obviously has this kind of drop of blood idea of of Mm -hmm. of race it's so much more complex in haiti in many in many ways because you have uh, first of all, just it's like I think eighty nine percent of the population is of African origin mm-hmm. at the time of the revolution. It's something like something like right. that, and right, then you right. have this yeah. this free class, and you've got 
you know, people of African ancestry with plantations and slaves. And right. um, it's just such a, a, a crazy mix of, of interest mm-hmm. and identities. And yeah. it just creates a very volatile situation is what you're, ta- what you're talking about. Everything is constantly in flux because people right. are constantly having to read, f- figure out again where yeah. their interests lie, who they need to support, yeah. who they need to go against. Yeah, um, but 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 even back then, people kind of like knew what the deal was. You know, they, they knew that the the, the 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 common denominator, so to say, or the uh, the thing that matters the most was basically your 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 uh, your economic standing. So there, right. there's a saying in, in, in Haitian Creole: uh, a, a black man with money is a mulatto. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so people knew uh, the, the class issues were, were, were also, you know, uh, they were there. People could see them as well, you know? So, yeah. Uh, and what, what all, it kind of suggests also is that, you know, for that, that mulatto class, for that mixed, mixed race class, mm-hmm. a racial system would be, would be very harmful for their interest. Right. Of course. If, of course. if you know, and, and I, I believe that, you know, the French start imposing more and more of a racialized system in, in that latter half of the 18th century in Haiti. So a racialized system is going to, is going to particularly harm their interests, but right. slavery itself is not necessarily against their interests, right? Because they can benefit from a slave system unless right. the slave, unless the system is, is defined wholly on racial terms, in which case they become part of that second, or as you said, third class of, mm-hmm. of people in, yeah. in Haiti. So. Yeah, well, I, th- I think um, the, the, the race, you're saying that basically that they're benefited with the, the, the freed, the freedmen, the, um, you know the mulatto uh, entity, so to say. You're saying they benefit benefit more from from slavery than from uh, the racial hierarchy that the French wanted to set up. That, that's what you're saying. I'm, I'm saying that the the racial hierarchy is more damaging to them and their interests than than slavery itself was in some ways. Okay. Does that but make sense? Well, well, it, it does make sense. But like the ironic thing is that the, the racial hierarchy is something that has been that has been uh, perpetuated like to this day. Right. Like, so co- you know, there's still kind of colorism in, in well, there's, there's colorism, right? To this day, you know, I, I grew up as a kid in, in Pétionville, you know, named after Pétion, the, yeah. you know, the the one who came in the collection expedition, basically. And I heard this Haitian, you know, uh, a scholar, one of the Twio brothers, a, a novelist actually, Yonel Twio, saying that you know uh, uh, that all the all the uh, uh, streets in Pétionville are named after basically uh, mulatto uh, yeah. uh, people. Yeah. which is kind of like really odd, you know, so, so that racialism thing is still, you know, uh, very much part of the, the fabric of, of Haiti, you know, that's, and, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sad, but unfortunately it, 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 that, that, that's, uh, that's fact. And it's one yeah. of those things where, you know, you don't notice it unless until you notice it, right. That once you start, once people start, Oh, all these streets are named after people who look like this. Right. Then it becomes, I mean, maybe it's obvious from the beginning, but it, it seems like one of those things that's kind of hidden in plain sight a little bit mm-hmm. that the values of the country are being kind of depicted in, in the street signs, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think, I think that, you know, um, what happens that, you know, human beings, basically, they, they function according to the, uh, you know, to the, to the tools that are available to them. You know, right. so if, if the racial order that they grew up in or they existed, you know, uh, is the if the old order was a racialized one, then the the new order will tend to, you know, uh, uh, persist. You know, uh, uh, it, the, the the new order will 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 incorporate some of the old right. uh, uh, principles, so to say. You know, uh, in, in you know, in its format, and that's 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 exactly you know what 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 happens. You know, it's it's yeah. not it's not a great thing, but 
and it reforms just enough to allow this new class to justify their own their own power right so right, it's, it's right, still a racialized right, system yeah. but it's it's changed just enough to allow another right, group right, to now claim that right. the upper echelon of that system mm -hmm. right yeah and in fact you know you know so after independence, you know, Haiti became independent in 1804, and there was the Stalin died in 1806. That he was assassinated, actually, and people claim that you know, uh, you know, uh, that that Pétion was part of that cabal, you know, who had him assassinated. Mm -hmm. the, the, the rich, you know, mulatto uh, uh, entities in, in, in the south, and so you you fast forward, you know, to about 1825, and the French are back, basically. The French, you know, with their gunboats, you know, their, uh, you know you know, around the, uh, the island are basically pressing Haiti to, you know, pay them an indemnity. And, and, and Haiti actually signed on the dotted line. They said, listen, okay, we'll, we'll pay you, you know, such, such amount. It's like a huge sum of money, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even, you know, I don't know the exact figures, but it's huge. But just crippling debt, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Which they didn't uh, uh, finish paying until the 1940s. Wow. Yeah, right. So, uh, uh, and, but, but the same dynamic, I think the same thing happened in the other islands too, where, um, the slave owners uh, of Jamaica, they were, uh, you know, they were paid money. Right. Their victims were not, uh, were, were never, um, you know, uh, remunerated in any kind of any, in, in any way. So it's- No, it's, I mean, that's one of the biggest pattern. legacies. Like, you know, you can talk about emancipation, but mm -hmm. emancipation is seen as more of a, uh, you know, in, in the case of Haiti, in the case of the British Empire, which abolished slavery, I think 1836. Yeah, you, you pay off the slave owners, but you leave the right. former slaves just basically out, out to dry, hung out to dry. Right. You know, trying to exist in a system in which they have mm -hmm. every disadvantage you can imagine. And in, in some ways, like Haiti then kind of represents that on a national level, right? That uh, this this country that's come into being through this revolution is mm -hmm. then hung out to dry by the, the global community, right? Because they're not, well, well, aren't they embargoed well, I, and they're not recognized for, for much of that first, you know, 20 years. For the first 60 years, yeah, okay, yeah. 60 years, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was just before the American, uh, the, the, the Civil War that uh uh yeah that, that the united uh, states American, recognized uh, yeah. recognized you know that haiti as, as a state but there was there was like a lot of there was plenty of uh trade be between going on between the united states and you know i mean there in other words i'll yeah. trade with you it's it's like it's a very illicit accessory yeah. thing you know i'll i'll trade with you but you know you, you're not a country okay <laughs> right you know yeah. you know it's like it's like the slave masters like, i'll sleep with you but you know you're, you're not a woman you're a thing okay so right yeah <laughs> There's so, some connections there. Yeah. yeah. As, as we kind of just fast forward in the in history a little bit, in the, the 20th century, you know, the, the dynamic now becomes American interference more so than ever, oh, yeah, including, yeah. including direct occupation. Well, well there, there was one major thing I probably shouldn't skip, skip yeah. uh, is that eight, I think around 1860, and uh, uh, that was like a major, uh, uh, that's when the Haitian state signed uh, what's called a Concordat, an agreement with the Vatican, okay, mm -hmm. to basically to 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 have the Vatican send their priests to Haiti and basically they took over the education system in Haiti. Okay. So that, that was that's considered like like a very pernicious sort of uh, uh, development in the sense that that you know this control of your uh, of your educational and spiritual life is right. basically was like yeah that that, that was the chokehold basically that has led to. Uh, to a lot of issues. Haiti was still, Haiti was not always poor. The, the country was, you know, self-sustaining for a long time. In fact, small scale farming, it's been discovered as a guy, a gentleman at Duke University, I forgot, Laurent Dubois, he writes a lot about, you know, uh, Haitian uh, uh, history. Mm -hmm. And one of his students actually, uh, you know, found the uh, Haitian uh, Independence Act, I think somewhere, yeah. 
Okay. So he writes, I remember him writing a, a piece in the, the Times stating clearly that the, uh, the kind of agriculture, uh, agriculture setup that, that exists in Haiti was perfect for the country. It was like basically small parcels of land that mm -hmm. were being farmed by, you know, small, you know, small farmers. It was, you know, it wasn't like this big macro, you know, mega industry. And Haiti, you know, fed itself pretty well throughout the 19th century. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, people would think that, well, you have to mechanize, you have to go really big. And that's not the case at all. Right. But well, that's, I mean, that's the, the problem of in this capitalist system, right? If you're not providing something for the system, then, then you're depicted as being poor, you're depicted as being right. undeveloped. When right. it seems like the point should actually be, can you, feed, can you feed your country? Can your country sustain itself? Right. As opposed to, can you produce X number of automobiles or something like that, which is, you know, how right. everything gets twisted in, you know, particularly in this post-colonial period, that's the challenge of so many of the countries that come out of, of empires. They've got to build an economy. And, and what that means ultimately is build an economy that functions within this global capitalist system, as opposed to right. build an right. economy that yeah. functions. Yeah. Because the measure, the measuring stick, you know, is, is from the, the capitalists. Basically, you know, yeah. we're going to measure your economy according to these standards, you know, and like, you know, and those standards are completely, uh, that th th these are man-made standards that are, that are valid in some places, but not, not, not everywhere, you know. Right. So, yeah. So fast forward, you have 1860, this, this agreement is signed between the Vatican and so the Haitians think, you know, generally that this is like another, as, this is as bad as the indemnity that, that we agreed to pay mm -hmm. in 18, back in 1825. And then, of course, you go to the, um, the American occupation, 1915, you know, which is like, you know, but this was not just Haiti. The, the Americans were all over the place, you know, they're, you know, in South America, you know, uh, you know, yeah, Monroe Doctrine yeah, and that kind of stuff. So Haiti was part of that uh, process. And so the, they went in on uh, 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 the pretext that there was chaos there and, you know, there was... Uh, there was a succession of various presidents and then, you know, and they used that as an excuse to, uh, to go in. And, but the first thing that they did actually, even before they went in, they, they went to the, um, the bank in, of Haiti and then actually took all the gold. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You got to <laughs> secure that gold, that right? The first thing they did. And that's, that's fact. You know, I didn't make that one up. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. And then you have, uh, you know, Americans left in 1933 and, uh, you know, you had some progressive, uh, you know, uh, HTMA was a, you know, considered one of the progressive presidents in the 40s. And then we got settled with, uh, with uh, Duvalier for like about 30 something years. Mm -hmm. And it's been, again, a lot. It, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty checkered kind of, uh, you know, uh, past. You know, the, the yeah. second half of the uh, 20th century, you know, has not been very, uh, you know, uh, pretty. Right. Yeah. And you, so, I mean, just doing the timeline here, your family would have left during the Duvalier Years. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad went to jail like three times, you know, uh, you know, the Duvaliers, you know, he got beaten up, you know, yeah, he's lost okay. his hearing and one. And he wasn't, I don't know if he was a, a, a radical per se, he was just, I guess he was like more like a social radical. And he was a journalist, he liked, to, you know, to speak his, his mind, so to say. Yeah, sounds dangerous, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And he was like a radio personality, and, and so he, was, he got picked up like two or three times, you know. So, so, that's basically, you know, uh, the overview, you know, and you can come, come up to a more recent time with Aristide and so forth. And yeah, also same, overthrown, same, right? Yeah, also right. overthrown by the United States, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's the same neo-colonial game. But basically, it doesn't really, what, what used to be said, you know, is that, you know, listen, if you guys just go to school and learn and become civilized, then you're going to be okay. Right. Okay? And then you have all these, you know, and you go to school and you, you know, you get your, you know, there are like so many uh, uh, Haitian PhDs out there. Or even, you know, like I hear the Nigerians have the most 
PhDs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so it's not just a question of like getting educated, you know, and, you know, uh, very often you get educated and you, be, you know, you become the, uh, you become the auxiliary of, of the powers that control your country, basically, mm-hmm. you know? So there, there's a problem with, uh, you know, with just uh, this, this formula that somehow if you just, you know, go to school and, and get your degree and learn how to speak French, learn how to speak English, like the British and you're all going to be okay. That, that's, that's, that's all baloney, but that's truth in it as well. But, you know, but it's not, it's not the entire, uh, it's not the entire uh, uh, thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, almost at, at best, what, what that can do is, is uplift individuals, but it's, yes. it's, it's yeah. keeping the, the base situation the same, right? It's not uplifting anything else beyond those individuals yeah, who yeah. play the game I mean, right and know the right yeah. people and, and find their, their place within this the system. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I guess we could bring it up all the way to Obama, basically. I mean, Obama is like, you know, perfect. You know, I mean, I, had I gone to high school, you know, and, and you know, and, and studied and, and focused on, on my college career and, and gotten tutored for my SATs, I, I could have been in Obama's position, you know? Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> but, the p- potential Obama, yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I don't think I, I would have made it. I, I would have been like, uh, you know, I, I was born, you know, um, I was born in Haiti, so I don't think I would have qualified. So. Oh, right, yeah. Other <laughs> than that, other than that, yeah. yeah. It's not too late, by the way. You're still, you're still young enough. Trump would have a field day with me, you know. Like, <laughs> get this immigrant out of here, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, you got my right. You got my right. You got my right in vote. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you know, but the point, like you know, Obama, for example, you know, I mean, I, I voted for him twice, and you know, I was quite yeah. taken by uh, his candidacy, and you know, and and you know, was the first black president, and it's it's all great, but I don't. Think my personal views. I don't think he did a lot, you know, for the for the black community here, you know. And he's well educated kind of guy. Went to the yeah. white schools and so forth. And and um, basically, he didn't have the uh, he didn't have the power that Bush had, you know. W. He didn't have the power that Bush had. Same thing with Mayor Dinkins. Mayor Dinkins was the black mayor of New York City. Yeah. He didn't have the power that 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 uh, Giuliani had, you know. Yeah. And and so there is a, a, a some people can arrogate powers to themselves. You know, and, you know, because they're one of the boys, so to say, you know, you know, I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. You know, like Trump can say, like, I could do this. You know, I can, yeah. what do you say about shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue and nobody would know, nobody, nobody would, would care. care. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, power that, that you basically assume that you have. You know, that and, sense of privilege, right? That, that right. I can do right. this thing. Yeah, right. And, 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 and people who have simply, you know, uh, like Obama, who have basically followed the rules, don't have that kind of power. Right. You just don't. It's just, it, you know, yeah, because yeah. power is not your education that, you know, that, that gives it to you. It's, it's your, uh, it's, it's your clan. It's your base. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My, my, this is really far afield now, but, but my current theory of Obama, or current view of Obama is that he was both the best possible president our system could create, but also mm-hmm. kind of a shitty president. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah. The limitations of our system are so great that, mm-hmm. that the fact that he made it up is about as good as you can do and it's still well, not I, that great well I, th- I think obama was was the uh you know from from my layman perspective here i'm not a you know political scientist but you know it, it seems to me from my little from my little corner here that obama was the fig leaf n- n- uh, required to um to uh hide the ugliness of you know the the bush administration with all the yeah. war you know and all that you know the you know, weapon of mass destruction so people just needed some some yeah. sense of a rational order, you know, something like, that made sense. Obama was the perfect, you know, uh, image for that, you know, cleansing, cleansing moment in history. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. What all this is kind of 
suggesting to me, you know, talking about, you know, access to power and talking about Haiti in, in particular is that there's a very big difference between freedom and liberation, right? That Haiti mm -hmm. might've been free in 1804, but what the history shows is there, the country was far from liberated, you know, right. it, both because we talked about their, they become part of this global capitalist system in which it's not mm -hmm. enough to just produce for, for your own subsistence, right. uh, the, the reparations, American occupation, right. uh, you know, coming under the thumb of, of dictators like Duvalier, right. um, that that liberation is still, yeah. still waiting to happen yeah. in many ways. It's, yeah. it's very, you know, this, the story is very similar with, with emancipation in this country that, yeah, you can free slaves, but mm -hmm. if the system doesn't, liber doesn't offer real liberation, then we're going to have right. what we have now, which is still this kind of underclass of, of, yeah. um, of, of people that are still living under the legacy of the failures of, of emancipation and, and re reconstruction, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Just well, offering so, political freedom is not enough, in other words. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the problem, you know, actually starts even before the problem is with capitalism itself, because what happens like, you know, we, we tend to think of capitalism as being sort of like, you know, this, uh, the way it's sold to us, to most people is that, well, you know, you make the candles, I'll make the, uh, you know, I make the shoes yeah. and this person, and we'll just kind of like sit here and trade. And it's like, it's like, wow, this is great freedom. We could produce whatever you want, but it doesn't work that way, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, that's not the way it works because you know people start accumulating capital or you know the storyline yeah, yeah, right, right. right so so i think so so capitalism itself as, as much as it uh, uh, it pretends to be you know something that's open you know is it, really exclusive so basically so the, the contradictions start with capitalism itself because it's not yeah. an, it's not an open system right by, by definition it, it's a closed system and and, and the, the, the there is uh you know uh competition and uh little by little the, the competition becomes war yeah you know and the, the same thing the same dynamic now exists between you know the united states and china like you know there's competition and like you know and next thing you'll know something will blow up yeah, uh, yeah. You know, i mean I, I mean we don't want that of course nobody right. wants that the consequences are too uh, you know the stakes are too high right now right but you know, uh, uh but that's the nature of capitalism yeah yeah so so be, before you get to freedom and liberation so capitalism itself is the problem yeah. How do you operate within the system? I, that really gets us to our, you know, the central question. We were talking yesterday and, you know, we, we had this really great conversation kind of preparing for this today, but I was kind of struggling to figure out this, this unifying idea behind it. And then you, you, you came out with um, the central question, how does one express oneself in the context of oppression? Um, because, you know, coming from that art background and, and you know, writing about art in, in many ways, that's the central question of, 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 creating and creativity. And, you know, we were talking about revolution. We're talking about kind of the nation of Haiti coming to being, but mm -hmm. what those ha things have in common with art is that they're acts of creativity, that revolution requires, right. you know, having your head, this vision of what you want to create. The nation mm -hmm. is an imaginary thing. It requires, again, that vision, that sense of this thing doesn't exist. We're going to make it. And then of course, art also is this, this form of expression um, that's right. about creating what, what wasn't there. So in the context of, of, of Haiti then, um, how do people figure out to express themselves within this long context of, of oppression, both before and after the French, both before and after American occupation? You know, what, is it, what does it look like in, in Haiti? How do people kind of see themselves within, within the yeah. system? Well, I think what, what happens generally, you know, uh, let's say you know, historically in Haiti, people can carve out little uh, 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 pieces of space for themselves, so to say. So yeah. at one point, a, a particular uh, um, formula aesthetically might work. 
Right. You know, for, for you know, I mean, we had the negritude movement in Haiti, mm-hmm. right? Which was kind of, uh, uh, you know, back in, it started uh, by, well, 1928 was a seminal book published by, uh, uh, by this uh, scholar, uh, Jean-Price Marsh. And so the country began to uh, focus on its folklore. That was very popular. People, people were playing, uh, you know, uh, folk songs all over the place, classical composers of which uh, I'm very fond of recently, I uh, started composing uh, uh, classical music, you know, uh, based on Haitian folklore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Vodou was, you know, uh, you know, came out in the open, so to say, more or less. And um, so people were expressing themselves, that, that sort of like opened up, you know, space for them, so to say, so they can, right. they can express their blackness. I'm black, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know uh, my Africa, my, I'm, Af- I'm of African ancestry, you know, my, I'm a vaudouisant, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, and so forth. And so that seemed, that, that might have been radical, you know, uh, uh, back then, you know, and it still is to some degree, but, you know, what's radical now may not necessarily be radical in a different context. Right. It's simply not enough, you know? And so artists, you know, uh, have to be able to find ways to, uh, because ultimately, the tools, as I said, as I suggested earlier, the, the tools that are at, at our disposal, you know, uh, that, that, that we could use to create the, uh, the system that we, that, that we wish, often tools that we are borrowing or that, that have been, that are, that are simply available, that are, that, that have been uh, basically passed on to us from our oppressors. Yeah. You know, so if I'm writing poetry and I'm writing poetry in French, Okay, I can be the most radical, you know, Haitian poet, but I'm still writing in French. Writing in their language, yeah. And then, and then the French would, would love you for it. It's like then, you know, because the French have this whole thing called uh, francophonie, where they, they, do, they use that in Africa as a way of basically, you know, culturally controlling the, uh, the, the uh, developments in, in, in France. So they're, they're going to be... They, they're, they're going to be the, the center and the Francophone countries will be the, uh, the periphery, so to say. They, you know, so the, uh, they're the arbiter of, of what's great. You, you're going to measure yourself against the center, you know. Right. So, so you're writing French poetry, you know, uh, uh, you know and, you know, and your, your, your themes may be Africa, but it's still in French. So, so there, there comes a time where you have to basically find a ways to, you know, to, um, you know, I think the... the, the um, the, the French guy there, the one of the postmodernists, you know, uh, Willem Bart has this thing about you have to cheat language, mm-hmm. you know, you, uh, uh, and the way to do that is to, is to, uh, because he, he, he says that the, the reasons why power sometimes doesn't change all that much, even when we attack it, you know, uh, uh, because we end up reproducing it in, in the very language that, that we use to overthrow that power. Yeah. You know, so you have to find a way to cheat the language. You have to find a way to, to, to speak between the lines, you know? And so it's a, it's a very, but, it, but it's much more than that though. I think that the, it, it, it's, I don't think it's a question of uh, either intellect or just creation. I think it's a gamut of things that you have to throw, uh, you have to bring to the table in order to get change. And one of them uh, uh, is to basically, um, you know, design uh, uh, some, some mechanism for exchange, not just cultural exchanges that take place between a particular uh, community, but to have economic exchanges, meaningful exchanges, mm-hmm. you know, take place. You know, in, in the Chinese communities here in the, throughout the United States, apparently, uh, um, you know, most Chinese communities employ, you know, other Chinese to work in their stores, yeah. you know, 
but that's not necessarily the case for a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know, black owned businesses. Right. You know? And so, um, the, the, so I think that, that material, uh, uh, you know, exchange has also to be part of the ingredient that that has to be part of creation. You know, I think, so I, I'd like to expand the idea of, you know, expression. Expression is more than just me painting a painting or writing a poem. It's me going to the uh, corner store and buying a cup of coffee from, from, from a Haitian. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, 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 and talking and, you know, it's health, it's, it's everything else, you know? And so the, because ultimately, you know, liberation is, is about, is, is about, you know, identity and identity is about, you know, continuity and, and, and some degree of cohesiveness. Yeah. You know, because ultimately, you know, all the people on the, on the planet have to be able to live together, but people don't live together as a block. You know, it's basically s- subgroups, you know, that, right. that, that have to feel uh, 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 their own sense of uh, freedom. You know, think of the subgroups as basically bricks on the face of a building. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So each of these subgroups has to be, has to be physically uh, 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 together enough so that the building doesn't fall apart. If one brick, you know, is, is made out of mud, for example, then, then the building runs the risk of, you know, at least the facade of the building runs the risk of collapsing. Right. So I think various subgroups, you know, need to have that. We need to strengthen the various subgroups and, and capitalism doesn't want that basically. And we see it, you know, here in this country as well, where, you know, families are split, you know, like a family may grow up in New York and all of a sudden, you know, like, you know, kids, the kids, uh, you know, get their degrees and one goes to California, the other one goes to, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? To, uh, yeah. stays in New York, the other one, and you're all scattered, you know? And, and so that, that, that defeats, you know, that, that somehow undermines, you know, the, the cohesiveness of various subgroups, you know, it, yeah. It's so complicated, right? Because you, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you do want to create this greater sense of unity, but, but, th- and this has been the challenge of globalization as well. Like you could make the case, you know, it's nice to be able to drive down the block and get Thai food, right? As, as one right. example, right? That's something that would right. not have been available to people, you know, a few decades before, but, mm-hmm. but there's also this homogenization aspect of it as well, that, mm-hmm. that what we're doing because, you know, as you pointed out, like what these companies want to be able to do is sell the most stuff to the most people. And the easiest right. way to sell the most stuff to the most people is if three people share the same taste. Right. Um, and that right. means you don't want, you know, this local, you know, mm-hmm. business selling Haitian food. You want right. people in that community buying McDonald's or right. Buffalo right. Wild Wings right. or whatever, right. whatever it is. Right. right? That, yeah. right. So, so, you know, how do you maintain that sense of community? How do you bridge these communities together into something larger? Um, how do you maintain distinctiveness, but also create some sense of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, group identity, well, you know, yeah. group connections. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's so difficult. In, in the, it, it is difficult. Well, there are communities and, and it's not just one thing. There are communities. I know in the Haitian community, there, there are, there are people who are, who basically will go to the Haitian restaurants and, and get their, you know, their, their, their griot, which is basically pork and fried pork or the rice and beans or whatever. And then, so people will consume what's available locally. Uh, and, and basically they'll disregard the McDonald's, you know, and, and right. that kind of stuff, you know, that, so that does it. But, but once you have, once you're allowed to have that tool, you know, that, that structure working for you, the other structures, what happens with the other structures? You see what I mean? So you, mm-hmm. you need a whole set of tools here, you know, to, 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 uh, to, to have your liberation. And very often, if you, if you have the food, then you're not going to have, you know, the, you know, something else, you know, you're not going to have the education or if you, if you have the education, you're not going to have the food or you're not going to, you know, it's very hard to have, you know, all the various, not all of them, but enough ingredients, you know, to come together, enough tools to come together 
so that at your disposal, so that you could actually create what that you want to create. That that's that's the hard part. You know, right. That's the hard part. You don't you don't have that uh, that luxury. You don't have the latitude. You know that that uh, yeah. But but I, but that, that uh, you know at one point that's also a, a human issue too. Oh, definitely. Know? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about something from this this piece that you you sent me. So it's unpublished right now, uh, as, as I think I said earlier. It will be right. available somewhere at some point. At, at that point, we'll we'll make it available to, to our listeners sure. as well. Sure. But you talk about um, you know this kind of art movements in in Haiti. And you talk about this this distinction between the the primitives mm-hmm. and the sophistique. Did I say right. it right this time? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and yeah, maybe even for listeners who don't, you know, never heard those terms before, you get some sense of, of what that means. But just can you talk a little bit about that, that distinction? Because it goes back into what we were talking about earlier, the, you know, language and culture and identity and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, using the oppressors, using the language right. of the oppressors to, to create. So just talk a little bit about that, those, yeah. those concepts. Well, yeah, generally speaking, you know, uh, uh, for for most people, you know, like Haitian art is considered, you know, is the art that that came in in vogue, like in the uh, mid forties, nineteen forties. Basically, there's a American conscientious objector who went there and he started this art center, and you know, and paintbrushes were subsequently, you know, uh, and paint and art supplies subsequently given to you know local population and you know various you know self-taught painters, you know most of them from the working classes, you know, started to paint and some of them, they, they did some great work. So uh, uh, these self-taught painters are, you know, generally known as, 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 uh, as primitive. I use, I use the, you know, Creole term, which is a cognate of the French term, primitive. Okay. Uh, but, but, you know, and, and I know it's a controversial term and, you know, people don't like it. It's, you know, it's basically, you know, um, you know, but, but I, I think that's, you know, the, the term, it has its validity, it, it, you know, if, if it's used in its, its historical context. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the period was, was a self-taught artist who basically uh, supposedly were going by their instinct alone. They relied on the folklore of the country and Vodou in particular played a central role in their work. And so they're not, these are not uh, artists who, you know, went to Paris to study art. They basically... Uh, uh, cobbled the whole thing together on their own, mm-hmm. using their own uh, uh, their own uh, internal resources, so to say. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and and uh, uh, well, that, that's that's kind of like you know uh, putting it in a nutshell, and, and I'm, I'm reducing it quite a lot because course, I, yeah. I think nobody does anything according to what's inside of you alone. Right. <laughs> so to yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe themselves, you know they they. Say, one look once you go to once you go to the to the middle of the metropolis okay you could be this you know this peasant from 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 the bushes somewhere once you go to the metropolis okay you get a sense of things right away okay you don't you don't need an attorney to understand how things are functioning in the metropolis okay right. you, yeah, yeah. instinctively you realize what's going on so the primitive themselves were part of the the self-taught artists themselves they were part of a uh, of a of a nation state that was modern its constitution and its and, and institutions you know so therefore there aren't you know, uh, completely, you know, separated, you know, from, from, from bourgeois society, so to say. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, to some degree, it's a construct, it's a kind of, you know, fallacy to say, to limit them to just that word. But we won't be able to communicate unless we have these words. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Words, words don't cover everything, but we need them. You know, we have to rely on them. So, right. um, so on the other hand, you have the sophisticates who are basically, you know, more bourgeois artists who are, uh, who some of them had some schooling and well, a lot of them had schooling, you know, formal schooling and some art training and they wanted to do more like mainstream modernism. Right. And so there was this sort of like, you know, uh, 
uh, dichotomy or even sometimes a rivalry between between the two groups. But the rivalries were, you know, were uh, fostered by the people who were pulling the strings because like the people who were supporting the Americans mostly were supporting the, 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 the primitive art, uh, uh, you know, basically would, would uh, deny the people producing the modern art and any, any, any critical space to show their work. Right. So you, there, to this day, there, there's a, um, there is a, a, a group in the United States, you know, the Asian Art Society, and they deal exclusively with primitive art. They, they will not buy anything that's kind of like modern looking. It's like they, what they want is their, the real authentic, you know, exotic stuff. That's what they want. Right. And that's considered like, you know, more worthwhile. And so, um, so that, 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 by the way, that dichotomy mirrors, you know, a, a different dichotomy that existed in the 19th century in Haiti. There was the famous uh, Liberal Party and National Party. And, and I'm, you know, and I noticed, you know, I only noticed superficially, but that's probably enough for us at this point. The, the, <laughs> the, the Liberal Party uh, in, in Haiti, uh, 19th century, was the party that ruled according to the slogan that went, uh, you know, uh, power to those who are most capable. And the mm. National Party was like, well, power to the, you know, to the most numerous, yeah. you know, which is basically the peasantry and, 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 the, right. and the, uh, uh, the underclasses, so to say. So you had that kind of dichotomy. And that kind of you know, manifests itself in the, in the art situation in the 20th century. So things don't change all that much. They kind of change face, you know, but it's the same world that keeps you know, popping up all the time, you know, the same the same it's dynamics. Same categories with maybe named differently, but they're the right, same, right. same base categories. Exactly. Right, right, right. So I, I don't know if I covered, you know, if I, uh, if I answered your question, if I covered. Uh, no, I know you, you, you definitely did. And the reason I find it fascinating is because it's, it's so much about, it's, it's, it describes so much about a broader world, not just Haiti, but this, this broader world, which we've been talking a lot recently, you know, in the, you know, world of education, but also on the podcast about, about decolonizing the classroom. Like how do you, yeah. how do you remove the language of, of power and sovereignty from, from your, your classes so that uh, we're not just propagandizing. So we're not just putting people in their place. Um, so we have a, you know, a, a better, more, more open, more culturally re- relevant uh, curriculum. Yeah. But this is, this is a tension that exists within so many of the nations that, that come into being, particularly in the post-war period, obviously Haiti is different because it, you know, independence is 1804, but you can make the case that it's still under American occupation, right? Till the 19, oh, yeah, oh, 1930s, right? Yeah, yeah. So in, in many ways yeah. it has its own decolonization. Uh, the American ambassador runs the show over there basically. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, getting back to this question, how do you express yourself in the context of oppression? Then, you know, the, the tension is between those who want to reject the oppressor, right? And that means in all the ways, whether it's language or culture, or, uh, yeah. you know, art and this kind of stuff, or, or those who, embrace but but i think more so and is seek validation from from the, the oppressors or the former oppressors right that you know you you were talking earlier about this this kind of uh, idea of oh the, the haitians are, are uncivilized and so um you know they don't have a seat at the table and so one way to 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 react to that is say well i don't want to be at the table anyway right i don't right, i don't right. want to have this conversation anyway but the other way is is something you talked about that you you seek to then kind of mimic um, the mores, the culture, yeah. the language of, right. of those you want to be part of, of those groups you want to be part of. So that tension between kind of the rejection of, of the oppressor and then the, the seeking for validation from the oppressors 
is is such a powerful phenomenon. You know, you talked about this with with Obama as well, right? That how do you mm-hmm. how do you exist within that within that tension? In, right. in many ways, many ways, the central question of of our post colonial world, you know, in the latter half of the of the twentieth century in particular. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I think that you know, I, you know, I, I'm I'm confronting the same situation, you know, uh, right now. Actually, I, I've been in the past, you know, two or three weeks. You know, I've been listening to Haitian classical music, you know, art mm-hmm. music, you know, and uh, and uh, people are, you know, uh, and I, I listen. I, I used to listen to a lot of classical music, and I still do sometimes, you know. And and I'm trying to, um, and these are composers who are basically using Haitian folklore to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to create whatever it is that they're creating, musically speaking, to express themselves. Right. And, and so, like, you know, so I've written to one gentleman, it's like, well, you know, I'm trying to find out which ear to bring to this music. Do I bring my, you know, my ear that's used to Stravinsky and Bartok and, you know, and what have you, you know, uh, uh, Shostakovich that I like and Alvin Berg, you know, because I, you know, or do I bring, or do I bring my, my, my Haitian ears, my voodoo ears to it? Or do I bring right. all of myself to it? Uh, uh, and and I think that there's a there's a there's this innate you know I mean sometimes the, the tragedy of life kind of like really you know strikes me at time because what it is is that as much as we are free you know n- n- uh, um, we, we're not we're not free to say everything that that we want to say you know yeah. and, and 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 if we are going to be free to say everyone that we want but that, that we want to say it's a process. So that the, the, the table at which you are sitting or the people, your listeners, you know, you're going to need some time to, 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 to go to make the rounds of your consciousness so that people can know where you stand on this issue and that issue, your subjectivities. That takes time. Mm-hmm. And people are not going to trust you from the get-go if you say certain things. Right that, the that bat, becomes yeah. a marker for them to say, well, listen, I can't trust this guy. If you could say that, I can't trust. You know, you know you see what I'm trying to say? So there are some certain things that you cannot uh, risk to sit at a table. That's why we have all these formalities. When you, when you sit at a yeah. table with people, you know, if it's people you don't know, well, you don't, you don't talk politics. You don't talk religion. Well, why is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Certain things you just don't bring up. You know, it, it might be color. It might be, you know, and sometimes, but kid, kids, kids are not like that, you know? So, so sometimes we're not, at, we're not that free to, to say what it is that we want to say for, for lots of reasons. Yeah. You know, so we, we kind of like self-censor ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this topic is, you know, and, and yeah, and, and so that goes back to your question. How do we, you know, so the idea of creation is not to self-censor yourself. You have to be able to give free vent to your subjectivities, but of course, you can't do that everywhere. There's, there's got to be the right channel for that. And, I, and my latest thing is that I think that, my latest thing is that I think that different communities of people, right, should be able to hear uh, uh, a range of things about other communities, you know, about themselves, about other communities. So, you know, uh, the, the falsities as, as well as the, the truth about them. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what people say maliciously about a particular group, okay, that, that's part of the picture as well. It's, it's false, but right. it's, part of your, it's part of your picture. And, and, and it's up to you to, 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 uh, to deal with that falsity. Because that falsity comes from somewhere. It's motivated, right? It, it, it's, it's not something, it, it may be invented, but it's invented out of things that exist in the world. It's also reality. Yeah. Well, that's you the know? thing, right? Like, every, if you disregard everything that's invented, we, we have nothing, right? You have like <laughs> right. rocks right. and dirt or something like that. Because, right. 
right. know, everything we are as, as humans, everything that exists in our society is, is a construct of, of the human mind to a, to a large degree, right? There's so few actual objective things that exist uh, in our world. So, I mean, the, yeah. the challenge then is you know, understanding these things are subjective, understanding they're constructed, um, but not necessarily also buying into them as, as, as well, right? You, you, we had this, you know, in our conversation yesterday, we we're talking about contradictions because, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the Western idea of the modern world is that the modern world, you know, in their mind, got rid of all the ambiguities of the pre-modern world, that, that now right, there would right, be yeah, categories, right. <laughs> there'd be places to put everything and everybody and, and all these ideas. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, 19th century is where you start seeing the disciplines, right? So history is separate from sociology, which is separate from anthropology, and all those right. things are different from art and, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. Right. But what, what you were saying is that, you know, and, and then obviously that's all false, right? That within that system itself, there's all these contradictions. Those who say they, you know, talk about freedom, have, have slaves, and, you know, the French revolutionaries are, are talking about liberating themselves and egality and fraternity and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then they're also trying to hold on to Haiti at the same time. And, right. And, and what you said is, you know, you, you can't get around the contradictions, but we have to, we have to in, in some ways, bra- embrace the contradictions. But we also have to be, um, mm-hmm. we have to be, we have well, to recognize them, right? Yeah, you can't well, hide the, from the contradictions. Well, the, you know, the, the, con- the, con- the contradictions are us. Yeah. You know, like the contradictions are us, you know? I mean, uh, it's not simply a matter of like creation, being able to find the right things because, you know, anything that is, uh, uh, that you're gonna sort of like, you know, rationally put together or even emotionally put together, you know, uh, uh, any any kind of uh, procedure like that, it, 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 you know, you're going to have the same issues. Like I've been looking at the New York Times recently and I'm, I'm like amazed, you know, in the past, you know, because I, yeah, I had kind of stopped buying the New York Times. And now right now I joke to myself, what, what is this, like a black newspaper? You can't open up the New York <laughs> Times without seeing, you know, you know, a black artist on the cover, like a black writer, especially yeah. like this is not just during the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. You know, they did the 1619 uh, thing a few months yeah. ago. I think that was before. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, that was, I think maybe so it might like, have been a year what? ago now. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is going on here? New York Times, you know, it's gone black. What, what the hell's going on? You know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, it, it, you know, but, but the structure of the paper is still the same. Yeah. So the, 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 the problem is that, you know, um, if we, it, this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, when I went to school. If you if you if you're just basically consuming things that they're giving to you, you know, well, you're never gonna get you're never gonna get to the point where you want to be. Right. You have to consume what you want to consume. You know, it cannot be that the New York Times will validate your life for you. Liberation will. It's not that liberation occurs when the New York Times every single page has a black writer in it. You know, or or a black artist. That's not that's not that's a liberation. So you have to, you have to watch out for the things that you want, you know? Yeah. (laughs) We've been, this has been a long conversation. We can, we kind of uh, wrap it up here, but, but just as you were, as you're talking about, so my, my co-host Chris has been talking a lot about, you know, American U S history and the way U S history is presented. And, you know, there, there's been this tendency, particularly in the last like, you know, 40, 50 years to increase representation. And what that often means like in a history textbook is there's, you know, just the, the standard American history story, but then there's like a insert in the textbook that says, here's a black person, right? Mm-hmm. And he did stuff too, and here's a woman, and, they, and she did stuff too. Right. But as you were talking about the New York Times, just having those face in there, is, it's a step, it, it's something. Right. But until you change the actual narrative, the right. power structures are still going to be in place. Right. The same sense right. of, 
what's yeah. important and what's not is still in place. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, actually, I, I read a great review that exemplified what, what we're talking about here. There was a gentleman, forgot his name actually, in the Times, he wrote a, a review of Spike Lee's movie about uh, uh, Vietnam, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen it. Yeah, and, yeah. and even though the characters, they are all Blacks, they, they all go back to Vietnam and so forth. And the point he made is that uh, uh, it's, it's a Black film about Black characters going back to Vietnam and so forth. But the, the structure, you know, uh, of, of, of the... Uh, of the uh, the structures that brought about Vietnam itself is still there, hasn't changed. Yeah. And that was, the, that, that was his overall point. That was a great article. I think it ties up to what, what we're trying to get across here. Yeah, right. absolutely. So I think we solved it. I think we solved, we solved everything here today, didn't we? All, yeah, all the, well, all the yeah, problems are done, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we did okay, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> um, I, in, in grad school, my, my professor used to, my, uh, my advisor used to always say that that you don't always have to answer the questions and a lot of times asking the questions is, is more important than being able to answer them. And I feel That's like that we've, we've done a little true. bit of that today. We've asked a, a number of questions and provided some, yeah. some pathways to, uh, to, to further and, and, understanding. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, and that's liberation too, by the way, uh, yeah. uh, that it's not so much finding the right, you know, theory for your liberation It's basically, you know, being able to, to be true to yourself and being able to, uh, you know, to, to find your own path, so to say. So yeah. th there is that as well. You know, that, that's, uh, that's a great guarantor of, of uh, I guess, true liberation, I suppose. That's <laughs> a perfect way to end it. Thank yeah. you, Andre. This has been, this has been a, a fun conversation. Um, and uh, maybe we can talk to you again at some point. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Much All right. Thank you. Stay well. Well, that was really fabulous, Josh. You know, it's uh, entirely possible that I could sit and listen to Andre pretty much all day. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the next time we'll do we'll do a, a marathon eight hour session. <laughs> uh, you know what he has to say about his own story. You know, uh, coming uh, to the U.S., coming to Brooklyn, nonetheless. You know, at, at what about age thirteen or so, mm -hmm. and and being you know, a speaker of, of Creole, of, of, of Haitian Creole and, and, and some French and and maybe a little English by fits and starts. You know, I loved when he said, uh, his older brother says, what what language do you actually speak? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, for us going, we're about to go back to, to teach and our semester being the start, it's a reminder that, you know, we, we probably have a few Andres in our classes, right? Uh, students who you know just haven't found that thing that is going to uh, ignite the, the passion for for learning or the 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 sense of mission that of what they want to accomplish that they haven't been exposed to the the thing that's going to kind of light the fire and that you know if we can do that for one of our students you know throughout the semester two of our students something like that that's it's 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 an amazing thing to be able to do and so it did yeah. make me feel a bit lucky to have the jobs that we have and the ability to you know maybe have that kind of impact on on a student's life and he did such a great job of of, of illustrating that and you know goodness knows that in his own capacity as an artist a, a writer storyteller etc you know it's what i call flinging the door open for somebody you know we want to fling the door open for our students and invite them hey walk through see this bigger world you know and and it seems not only that andre lived that himself 
you know, but that he's in turn done that for probably countless uh, others, you know, and, mm. and uh, an invitation into that, that wider world and especially into the Haitian world. You know, we call this episode today, Listen to Haiti. And, you know, some of the things that came out of the interview, Josh, I, I, I was really struck by, you know, uh, you guys were talking about how these, these racial constructs that we're so familiar with, black, white, even mulatto, you know, mixed race, you know, were created in the historical mix of peoples in the Western Hemisphere and in these uh, systems of unfreedom and the sort of racialized systems of unfreedom, of slavery, et cetera. But uh, as he pointed out, you know, we have to be careful. And as, as our, our other, uh, you know, Haitian scholar uh, Truro argues in his book, because those, those constructs sometimes obscure more than they reveal. And I was really struck by how Andre said, you know, for example, in Haiti, a black man with money is a mulatto. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really important. I, you know, I, I think I might have made this point in the interview, but um, you know, it's it's a good example that that what we call race itself is far more complex than the way it's often depicted in this country because we do have this very narrow way of of understanding it, black and white, and this kind of stuff. But it's it's far more ambiguous than than that simple dichotomy gets across and when you look at a country like Haiti I think it's true also in Brazil um, but but the racial discussion is much more kind of segmented and, and there's many more boundaries and there's a lot more movement as well than you see in the United States in terms of those constructs and, the, and those boundaries and and that idea of you know a, a rich black man's a mulatto reminds me of this Franz Fanon uh, uh, statement we've talked about Fanon a few times now but he mm -hmm. says something like you know in the in the colonies you are rich because you're white and you're white because you're rich, which same similar kind of idea, right? That, that mm -hmm. wealth itself mm -hmm. is what gets you into that, that category of, of whiteness in, in some ways. Um, so it seems to be a, a common experience, one that Fanon, you know, kind of noted in Algeria in you know, the 1950s and something that Andre was, or I'm sorry, in Haiti, there's this expression uh, relating to the same kind of idea. Yeah. And I think what it reminds us of, you know, is, is what, uh, Andre also addressed what, uh, you know, Michel Trudeau and, and others have as well, which is, you know, when we create these binaries, what we should really be looking for are the contradictions. Mm -hmm. You can learn, you can really learn more about, uh, a, you know, a complex system, you know, by looking at its contradictions and, and not at, at its professed, you know, consistencies. In other words, uh, we know how the system is, profess to work, but that doesn't really tell us much about the system, particularly in the, in the writing of history, right? Because that system of power also ends up writing the history. And so not only do you not see the contradictions uh, as clear, but then you, you miss the, you know, the hidden stories or the silent histories as Trio calls them, you know, uh, Andre in the, in the interview said, the, the contradictions are us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, 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 and we have to embrace those, right? You have to at least, I mean, at the very least, you got to recognize they exist. And I think that's something yes. that, you know, you've been hammering on a lot um, in terms of, of U.S. history is that what so often happens in the telling of U.S. history is it's a very simple story. It's a directional story, right? From, mm -hmm. from here, uh, from there to here. Um, it's simple in a way, and the, the simplicity doesn't allow for examining the examining those contradictions um, and if you don't examine those contradictions then they don't exist as, they don't exist right they, they cease to exist within the minds of those who are, who are studying 
this 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 history. So yeah, we got to recognize them at the very least and hopefully confront them. Um, I don't know we get rid of them because they're they're there and as Andre said they're they're us. But if you don't recognize them, then you're you're doing damage, right? Uh, Trio has this this point about naivete, right? And uh, the the power structure benefits from naivete, right? It can it's plausible deniability for itself. But he says those who are oppressed can't afford to be naive. That's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what what Trio was, was saying. And I think it's absolutely correct that unless and until we acknowledge them, you know, when, when I say embrace, I simply mean you know, standing up to the bar of contradiction and, and seeing what it has to tell you. You know, uh, I know we both love the, the trio quote that the custodians of history shiver, afraid that the past is catching up too fast with the present. And I would sub- submit that those custodians of history, those who insist on, you know, affirming that national story of linear progress, um, that when they're confronted with obvious contra- contradictions, like the, the George Floyd uh, killing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the murder of George Floyd by the police uh, in, in many, uh, Minneapolis, you know. Um, you know, look, it was 50 years ago that John Lewis got knocked senseless at Selma. And according to that unidirectional history, uh, we should be past the point of George Floyd by now, but we're not. And so... You know, the custodians of history shiver, as Truro says, afraid that the past is catching up too fast for the present. What to me, what that means is the contradictions of the past are still sitting here with us now in our lap, you know, and we might comfort ourselves to think, well, we've made all this progress and, you know, we can build a memorial, you know, to Martin Luther King and that sort of thing, you know, and and at the same time deny the very radicalism, you know, of, of King's message or John Lewis's message. And that, 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 that the radicalism in part lay in the fundamental recognition that these contradictions haven't been resolved and that they're not likely to be resolved as long as we get complacent. Such a great word. You know, we get complacent with the stories we so often tell. And uh, hey, just one more thing, you know, that, that occurred to me as you guys were talking. Uh it was this problem of representation, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, I saw how on the uh, the Democratic National Convention, I know I wasn't going to go down the wormhole, but, you know, in the, <laughs> Here in we this, go. In the Zoom convention, they had a, a black kid singing the first bars of the national anthem. And then as the song progressed, you know, in the Zoom screen, more faces would come in and they tended to be non-white or people of color, and but also white people, too, of different ages and you know, you had this sort of small world after all experience, like the Disney version, you know. And I, mm-hmm. I tell you what, Josh, any anything that follows the Disney model <laughs> of historical st- storytelling is automatically suspect because, you know, the problem is you think you've accomplished something by simply representing, you know, multicultural identities or something. But if you put those identities between the same two covers of the textbook, you know, where the front cover says something about, the American miracle, you know, in the back, <laughs> the back cover is uh, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, then you haven't really changed the story, have you? No, it's the exact same thing. And, and you know, I don't want to um, diminish the idea of representation because it, it is important for people to be able to see themselves in the, in the stories they read and the, you know, the shows they watch, the movies, all this kind of stuff. But it's an easy fix for, you know, for Hollywood to, you know, start hiring 
black actors for for jobs that uh, previously had gone to white actors. It's a, it's a relatively easy thing, not easy, but it's an easier thing to do, but to fundamentally change the structure of power. So it's not just about putting those faces out there, but fundamentally changing the way people like that are treated within our society, um, changing this kind of racialized caste system we've had for, for you know, our entire history. That's the real work, right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, representation, let's, let's do it. Let's have more uh, different faces, different voices out there. Absolutely. But if that's the end of the story, then I don't think we're getting as far as we, we, we would hope we're, we're getting. No, I think, you know, we're kidding ourselves. In effect, what we're doing is, as the Native American historian uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has said, you know, we've created a multicultural palette, and we all agree that is a dramatic improvement over that old, you know, eggshell white. You know, I worked in a paint store one summer, Josh. You know, there's like three or four different kinds of white paint. I, I, I knew that. No, we had, we did a little remodeling job for our house last year, and I, I, was, I went into various places and was asked to choose between six different white colors. And I said, I, they're all exactly, I don't know what they mean. I can't see color in that way. Well, so what, yeah, so what uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz says is, you know, we can put multiculturalism to work, but if we put it to work, you know, on behalf of that same, you know, system of power that had denied them in the first place, the system hasn't changed. You know, there's there's a there's a better palette. You know, you got more choices, but the, but the story's s- still the same. And so I, I was struck by what um, uh, the person writing the intro to Troy's uh, book. Again, we'll put that on on uh, the web page. But uh, Hazel Canby, who's an American Studies professor at, at Yale, said uh, about Troy's work. You know, we can learn, or we learn how scanty evidence can be repositioned to generate new narratives. How silences can be made to speak for themselves to confront inequalities of power. And yeah, this is a bit of a theme for us, isn't it? You know, looking for those interior spaces, those silences, that scanty evidence, that slightly off-Broadway story, you know, that didn't make it onto the main stage, you know, particularly when those stories, you know, have us encountering people you know, with voices we're not accustomed to hearing, you know, because those histories are absolutely valid, absolutely legitimate. And there's no reason, in fact, there's good reason not to, to subordinate those voices to the same old main stage narrative story, in this case of U.S. history. We need a new master narrative, I think, is what we're saying, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, scanty evidence is one thing, but there's so many cases as well where the, the evidence is right there in front of us and has been there forever. You know, mm-hmm. Haiti is not a silent story in, no. in any, you know, they, the Haitians defeated Napoleon, at least the Napoleonic Empire, at base of the height of its power, right? Um, right. That's, not a, that's not a small thing. Uh, you know, we, we've begun to focus on, uh, or at least nationally begun to focus on, um, you know, police violence and, and these sort of things now. But obviously, black folks have been yelling and screaming about this stuff for, for decades and decades and, and didn't get heard uh, when they were saying those things. So... You know, yeah, there's there's places in between the cracks we need to get to and, and see these other stories. But a big part also is just being willing to see the stuff that's right in front of us, the mm-hmm. stuff that was never hidden in the first place. And yet, uh, because we have sight. hidden yeah. in plain sight, we have these grand narratives and those narratives didn't have space for or it was inconvenient or it was too complex to to include those voices and those stories. That's not a good enough. That's not good enough any longer. Right. That we got to 
make space for these things that require a lot of space, actually. Um, you know, we, we, we can wrap up pretty soon here, but I, I was thinking about, you know, as we've talked about a lot, the 1619 Project and, and this idea of, of centering, you know, black history, basically, at the center of American history, centering slavery at the, at the, the, the root of, of what the United States became and how different the story looks when you recenter. Um, and I think, you know, Haiti can serve a similar purpose in our broader discussion of, of modern world history, that, that the Haitian story is the story of the modern world in many ways, uh, with all its contradictions, with the kind of imperialism and colonialism, with the um, uh, oppression and exploitation. Um, it's right there. And, you know, as I think I said in our first segment, you can study the ideals of, you know, various Enlightenment philosophers. You can read what Jefferson had to say, but nothing's going to reveal the modern world better than the story of what Haiti did uh, and what Haiti was done to Haiti and what Haiti's become. Um, it's, it's in many ways a prime story in, in our modern history and one that deserves to be out of the shadows and, and on the front of the textbook, if so to speak. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, my friend. If what we really want is to understand ourselves in our world, including, you know, these, uh, you know, many and sundry neurotic impulses that bedevil us, you know, as a nation and in our lives and our politics, then we need to listen to Haiti. This has been episode 21, History Against the Grain. We'll talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you